Let's pray while we're standing. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be together tonight, and we thank you for uh, the truths of these songs that we've brought before you as an act of worship, Um, just even as we thought last week of the role of the prophets in your word, and that first song we sung coming right from the pages of Isaiah, as we think of the hope that uh, that was brought through the message of the prophets, Lord, it's in that hope that we come uh, before you tonight, uh, thankful that the Lord Jesus shed his blood so that we could be free. And so, Lord, as we continue in the, uh, the overview tonight of your big picture, the big picture of your, of your word, um, would you just continue to help us get a sense of your whole plan, your big picture, your story, how it all fits together, um, that we might know you better, know yourself, your purposes, your ways in this world, and where we fit in. And so, Father, bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And just going to switch a cable as we... Hopefully this works. One moment, apologize. Hey, we got it. Excellent. Well, obviously you are here for God's big picture, which is what we're continuing tonight. And uh, we're coming close um, to the completion of the Old Testament. Um, Was planning last week on shifting to the New Testament this week. Then I did some thinking and uh, wanted to just cover one more thing before we jump forward into the new I just wanted to publicly thank Sam for his contribution last week, which was excellent uh, in the prophets. Um, As we look at this whole idea in the Old Testament kind of coming to uh, a climax, I guess you can say, in terms of promise, looking forward into the New Testament next week in terms of fulfillment. We've been working our way through this whole idea of the kingdom of God as a concept for us to get a handle on what's the big picture of the Bible. And um, been looking at the different aspects of that as we, we looked last week at the prophesied kingdom and we've been looking at a bit of a timeline like this. The pattern of the kingdom again established in Genesis, how it perished with the fall, um, how then God initiated his rescue plan as it promised restoration through Abraham and we saw that partially fulfilled in the life of national Israel in the Old Testament. But by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 10, we saw that reached its high watermark with Solomon. And from there, the kingdom divided Israel and Judah. And uh, Israel went off the scene relatively relatively quickly. Uh, And what we find from 1 Kings onward, of about 20 kings, is this spiral of just things falling apart spiritually and nationally in the kingdom of of Israel. Of the 20 kings of Judah after Solomon, you'll find that there's one of these recurring themes about a king. Either they did evil in the eyes of the Lord or they did good in the eyes of the Lord. And of the 20, only six could it be said of their entire life and their entire reign that things went well. And so we have this decline that happens, and it's in that, with the partial kingdom kind of falling apart, that um, Sam spoke to us of the prophesied kingdom. And so it's in this world where 
God is sending his prophets to address not only the immediate disobedience of the nation of Israel, Judah, I should say at this point, their idolatry, their disobedience, and all these other things. Um, So the prophets spoke into those things. But there was also, as they addressed those issues of disobedience and how God was going to eventually send them into exile of where it leads, they go off into Babylon. Um, Sam kind of brought this up, that there's this near, far dynamic that's going on. That God's speaking into the national events of what's happening in the kingdom of Judah, but there's also a grander fulfillment of things that starts to take shape in the message of the prophets that we got into last week. So I'm not going to rehash all that. But what I'd like us to do tonight um, is an area that we haven't fully touched on that I feel like I would hate to leave the Old Testament without us speaking about these books. Because as we've used the kingdom of God as kind of a, a model to get our hands on things, um, there's a couple of books that have kind of really not, getting, not, not received much attention. And those are the ones that occur in the timeline, if you will, uh, in a period of time during and after the exile. And I feel these are really um, worth our while in terms of investing just some effort here before we go on to uh, the New Testament for several reasons. One, I think there's a very good possibility if we have any familiarity with the Old Testament, even those who have some familiarity with the Old Testament, might be a little shaky here. Uh, I know even of pastors who we come to the the, the minor prophets and they're like... "Mm." You know, it's just kind of you get the timeline thing and you're like, how do all these pieces fit in? I'm one of them sometimes, all right? This is really good for me to review. Um, But this period where God has sent his people into exile and the prophets speak into this and there's events that happen and it's helpful for us to review these things, not simply because um, we don't want to skip anything, I guess, but at the same time, as we look forward, as Dave said, that we're going to start looking at the promises fulfilled, the, 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 the kingdom coming through the person of Christ. And these post-exile experiences set the stage for what we're going to then see Jesus entering the world as we look at the time of Christmas. And so that's where we're going to be headed uh, tonight. We're going to be looking at what would be the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah primarily, but then also some of the other books. Now, if you have been following along, I don't have a copy in front of me, but maybe some of you bought a copy of God's Big Picture, uh, the book that a lot of what we're doing um, correlates with. Uh, Some of this information is in there. I had a hard time knowing what to name tonight because it doesn't really, you know, it's what models do. They don't always fit everything exactly. Um, So this is somewhat of the prophesied kingdom, somewhat of the partial kingdom, but whatever it's called, we're going to review it, okay? (laughs) And we're going to go forward. So I've given you, um, can I just borrow that quickly? Sure. You should have received one of these. And so what we're going to do is just go over a timeline of the exile and the post-exilic Period. Isn't that a great word? You're going to use that word this week a lot, right? The post-exilic period. It's one you only use in church. Um, but we're going to walk through it. And I think it's just helpful for us to, because again, I think sometimes this is a period of the Bible, a section of the Bible that we're maybe not very familiar with. 
okay? So we're going to start with one we've already touched on in the past. I'm just going to mention it again. And that is, as God has been, maybe I'll go back just one slide really quick. As God has been um, dealing with his people through this whole decline, at the end, we find that they go into exile. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. And if you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 10, we're just going to review uh, some of the circumstances under which God's people went into exile. Remember, there had been a steady uh, moral, spiritual decline uh, in the people of, of Judah at this time. And uh, in 2 Kings chapter 24 at verse 10, it says this. So the, uh, the king of Babylon and his troops have come. They've besieged Jerusalem. It says, at that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. So it's close to being overrun. And so the king comes, so he has the honor of taking over the city. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of, king, of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem all the officers and fighting men and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. And so in 597, we'll put this up here, um, 597, there is the, uh, the fall of Judah. Is there's, there's, it happens in a couple of waves, all right? We just read the first one, all right? And uh, there's another one that comes several years later in chapter 25. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes, he besieges Jerusalem, he conquers it, takes some of the people away. But he leaves some there in charge. And then in chapter 25, because they are rebellious, he comes back and attacks them again. And in chapter 25, verse 8, it says, On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the command of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. And so here you have, if you will, the final seams falling apart of the partial kingdom. The fall of Judah in 597 and then ultimately in 586 BC, the people are taken to Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah predicted about this time that there would be a period of length to it. Does anybody happen to know how long that period is? I hear murmuring. Go to Jeremiah chapter 25. Let's go there. God put and predicted through Jeremiah at this time 
that the people would be carried away. Look at chapter 25, verse 8. It says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, so even though the Lord was sending his messengers, the prophets, through all of this decline, he says, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. So all the activity, prosperity, joy, life, all of it is, you know, going away. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland until these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so they enter into a time of exile that God predicts is going to last 70 years. And so 70 years later, it's during this time, and some of the people you might be familiar with, other books of the Bible, who go away into exile is the prophet Daniel. So Daniel is one of those who's taken into exile at this time. And he lives for a long period of time because in 539 BC, the kingdom of Babylon falls to another kingdom that would be Persia. And not long after that transition takes place, there is a return. Seventy years later, the time passes. And after that period of time, there is a return, the first return. Again, the deportations kind of happened in waves. These returns are happening in waves. If you look at two chronicles is where we'll go next, just to kind of navigate our way through this. We've looked at this passage in the past, um, but I want you just to um, hear these words from a slightly different angle. We're coming at these different books that are covering the same series of events, again, trying to get this big picture into our minds. So 2 Chronicles 36, right at the end, it says this. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him. So this is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar and his sons, until the kingdom of Persia came to power, which is what we were just talking about, that timeline. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. Now, do you remember from our talk of the covenants, what the sign, one of the signs of the covenants was, was the Sabbath. So the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision. We talked about that the other uh, Sunday. Uh, the Mosaic covenant one of the signs of the people of, of, of Israel keeping covenant with God was keeping his Sabbath, and they hadn't been. And so it says, um, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So this is the thread we were just tracing through. And then it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of king Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. This is what king Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. 
any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. What's very interesting about this, not only is it a fulfillment of what the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, but at least a hundred years earlier, this character who we just read about, Cyrus, king of Persia, was mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. And I just want to take you there to see again, this is God's big picture. And if you remember, as we've gone through this story, we've been reminded of God's sovereign providence of moving and ruling and overruling to bring his kingdom purposes to pass. And none of this is happening by chance. It's not as if these events are happening in Babylon and Persia and, and Judah and God's making it up on the, on the fly. Look at Isaiah, if you will, turn back to or in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 44. And this is the first chronological reference um, to Cyrus speaking about the exile and what would be um, coming so Jerusalem it says would not be a place where there's joy and all these other things that we just read about now that message of hope in the prophets that we're going to see uh, as we go through this has a near so it's speaking to what's happening but there's also a grander picture that is pointing us forward to Jesus eventually that we'll get to. So uh, Isaiah chapter 44, look at verse 24. Isaiah 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things and who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, important of us getting the timeline is to realize this mention of Cyrus is at least a hundred years before the decree to send the people back in wave number one took place. Remarkable, remarkable. And so <clears throat> as you want to put this in perspective, I have up here Ezra chapter 1 tells us about this first group of people that go. Let's just turn there quickly. I know we're jumping around the Bible tonight, but this is probably why it's not so neat and tidy to fit this in somewhere. But I'm trying to pull these threads together again so you guys have the picture. So we just finished two chronicles on that same page or nearby should, the be should be the beginning of Ezra. So 2 Chronicles 36 ended with Cyrus saying, whoever wants to go back can go back to rebuild the temple. In Ezra chapter 1, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. It's, it's almost exactly the same language as 2 Chronicles 36, isn't it? The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And, to put, and so the story moves forward of how this first group 
comes back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, which I just love saying that name, Zerubbabel. It just kind of flows off the tongue, doesn't it? So Zerubbabel leads that company back, and this is the, re- the first return. And the focus in this first part of Ezra is on the rebuilding of the temple. And so this remnant comes back and they start rebuilding the temple. To put in perspective and timeline again, God's big picture, but um, Sam mentioned, this was great last week, this little, this little chart here of where the prophets were, just to kind of again zero in on this timeline a little further, the prophets who were speaking into the nation at this time in this period of exile were Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai and Zechariah. And it's in um, Haggai that there's this focus on the temple um, and the people contributing to the building of the house of the Lord. There was a period of time where the building stopped and he's challenging them to keep going. Um, And in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, I won't ask you to turn there, but these are verses that might be familiar to some of us. And it's interesting to put them into context. So the temple of Solomon that was destroyed, as we read that, as the king of Babylon came and hauled everything away, the gold, all the utensils, everything to to Babylon, when they came back to rebuild, um, things were not done on such a grand scale. In fact, um, the people who came back, who remembered the the original temple, when when they were building it, they looked upon what was being built and it says they actually wept because it, it, just, it just paled in comparison. And when we get to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, um, it says this, So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And then who later challenges him not to despise the day of small things, for the Lord was, was working through this. And so that's the, the first wave of the return. As we continue our, our kind of navigation of this timeline, then you have the events of the book of Esther. So Esther is really interesting. Not going to take you through a, a long um, explanation of the book of Esther. What's some highlights of the book of Esther that should be interesting for you? Search high and low through the book of Esther. You're, you're not going to find a word. A word you would expect to find in the Bible. In a story about God, there's no reference directly to him. The word God doesn't, doesn't occur, though he's, his fingerprints are all over it, his sovereignty. What is interesting is God's faithfulness and his grace and his goodness. Because here, the, the story of Esther in this time period, she is a conquered, a member of a conquered people, a disgraced people. And in the midst of that humiliation as a people, God sovereignly raises her up to become queen in this land and to use her to continue to bless his people even as he's had to discipline them by sending them into exile. So in 478, Esther becomes queen. We'll move on then just to the next return. So the next return, if you want to continue, you guys should have remained in in Ezra. Hopefully you're still there. Uh, But we're going to go to Ezra chapter 8. And this there is, or chapter 7 rather. There is a 
I have eight on the slide there. I apologize. It should be Ezra chapter 7. So the first part of Ezra, they, they return and they, they build the temple. So the focus is there. But Ezra is an interesting character. Um, Ezra was um, a teacher of the law. And he had come to be basically someone who would help them to focus on a return to, to covenant faithfulness. They had been disobedient, and he comes and he's, uh, in chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its, and its laws. So there's a focus on a return to covenant faithfulness. So this, this return, so the first one came in 538, the next one came 458, the one we're looking at here. And then there is one more return that comes um, these people would be contemporaries, as we're going to find out as we look at the next book, and that is Nehemiah. Return number three. Basically, the entire book of Nehemiah. So you have Ezra. I mentioned Esther, uh, but before that would be the book of Nehemiah, <clears throat> which came under another Persian king. So this is somewhat down the line. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 1, it says this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani and one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So there's been a group. Remember, some people remain. There's been a group that's gone back. Nehemiah had basically had a position of... Um, had a position within the royal household. He was a cupbearer to the king. And so he had a, a position of, a, of, of significance. And he's inquiring, hey, how are things going? And he finds out, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so it's this reality, even though they have gone back and they're building the temple, um, the, the city of Jerusalem still lies in ruins. And remember, if you think about the whole idea of the, of the partial kingdom, this is where the focus had been. And so for the city of Jerusalem, where God had chosen for his presence to be among his people, to remain in ruins, uh, was a disgrace. And so Nehemiah... Again, to summarize, what happens is, is, is he is sent back with a mandate to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So if you get the idea here, if we go back to our, our chart, we are seeing what would be a bottoming out and a, a bit of a restoration. Not a full, but again, it's this restoration and what the prophets speak into it that you're going to see in the end are going to be pointing us forward to the fulfillment as we see it in the New Testament and set the stage for the coming of Christ. And so we'll go back to our timeline. I was so worried we would not be back to where we were supposed to be and I'd have to go through all those little tags again to show you where we are. So <clears throat> let's go back to Nehemiah. So he goes back and under much opposition, um, in chapter 6, look at what happens. They, they work together and in chapter 6, remarkably, miraculously, Chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the 50, in 52 days. Which is remarkable. 
When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So here it again is this, there's this message of hope that, that Sam so well put was very much focused on future and this kind of big going to the nations. But there was still this story that was working out in the life of God's people in Judah, that he was bringing them back to the land. And it wasn't simply a rebuilding of, you know, a city structure. There was, if you continue on in Nehemiah, you can see in the ensuing chapters, uh, Ezra, who we just learned about earlier, is on the scene. And they have a public reading of the law. And it's through this public reading of the law that all of a sudden the people uh, respond and they confess their sins in chapter 9. And um, there's a bit of a, uh, a realignment of the people to say we're not going to neglect the house of the Lord. So there's this kind of partial renewal of this remnant going on. And then in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Now, do you remember what led to the exile? Remember he said what there would not be? Seventy years prior, all of that joy, life, vitality, they were going, that was going to go away because of the disobedience. God was going to send them into exile. But there was a ray of hope. It's only going to be 70 years, and I'm going to bring you back into the land. And then this near, far, there is a near fulfillment of God bringing them back into the land. But we know from the earlier story, even with a king after God's own heart like David, the partial kingdom couldn't make it fully come to pass. So in this post-exile, there's the return. There's the temple rebuilt, not on such a grand scale. The walls are rebuilt, and there is this return of joy. One of the prophets who was among um, prophesying, this would be the last New T uh, Old Testament prophet, is Malachi. And Malachi, I'm just going to read one section from Malachi chapter 4. It's going to take me a moment to get there, excuse me. Malachi chapter 4. And it's in this context and I want to just reference something that Sam referenced as well last week in chapter 3. In speaking to this situation, so if we go back to our, our slide again here. The people have been brought back. God has miraculously, amazingly, graciously allowed this disobedient, conquered people to be brought back into their land, their temple rebuilt, their walls rebuilt. God has blessed them, has restored them to some extent, but there's a, a bigger hope that he's been pointing to through his servants. But even here, it becomes necessary why there is need for that greater hope. Because as we come to this timeline, here they are, they're back, and guess what happens? History repeats itself. <laughs> And as you read the book of Malachi, you read that the people complain, they fail God, they grumble, and their hearts turn from him again. And it's in this mix that these promises come in chapter 3 where it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And so there is need for something greater than what they've experienced. And it's going to come into this mix. So from this point forward, after Malachi, until Matthew, you get this. I was thinking back to my music classes in primary school. You know, we'd sit there and we'd have to like clap the beats and then for the rest we'd have to go, you know, and just think doing this for 400 years. There's just nothing. There's no messenger of God. There's absolute silence. In this whole narrative, what I didn't mention, and uh, Sam mentioned it last week, in terms of the temple, the glory of the Lord had left the temple. The presence of God had left. It's quiet. So there's a partial kingdom thing going on here. God's restored them somewhat. This is why it doesn't really fit so well. But it lays that partial kingdom coming back just the littlest bit, lays the groundwork. Interesting too, I don't know if there's significance to this, but if you remember God told Abraham, your people will go into slavery in Egypt for how long? 400 years. Now here's another period of 400 years. And during that period of 400 years, they're not a powerhouse on the, on the scene. They, they become uh, subject to basically whatever is the global superpower at the moment ruling over that section of the Middle East. That's kind of the, the cultural, political world into which we come to the New Testament. And that's why there's a big blank there. <laughs> because there's 400 years where we don't have um, any word at all. I see some of you still scribbling, so I'm just going to stay on that slide for, for just a second because I know I gave you that timeline. And so, this isn't exactly perfect, but I just want, to, I just want us to go here. Um, so in the partial kingdom, we saw the Israelites, they were God's people, uh, experiencing God's rule and blessing through the Mosaic law and God's place and God's king. The, the prophesied kingdom pointed to a, a, a global people of God. What is it? Looking forward. This is some of the things that... Um, that Sam was touching on, that God's rule and blessing uh, was going to be going to the nations, that his place would be a, a new, just uh, massive global kind of temple thing, being the people of God himself. So in the post-exile, we kind of have a little bit of the partial kingdom revisited. We have the remnants of Judah. We have God's rule and blessing, the Mosaic law, that he's calling them back to it. God's place, the temple in Canaan, has been sort of rebuilt, but it, they shouldn't have been satisfied with that. And it should have been very clear that as the prophets spoke into this whole period that we just went through, that there was a bigger story that would lead to the fulfillment of that promised kingdom. And so the picture, you notice what's not present here either is a restoration of a king so the the monarchy is gone 
And so there is no king. And it's interesting um, that as we looked at Zechariah, Zechariah um, chapter 9, I want to read for you guys. Pointing forward. So Zechariah is one of the prophets who spoke during this time. And these are verses we know as we look through the New Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. But in Zechariah chapter 9 it says this, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there was a hope of a king. <laughs> but the prophets in that trajectory that we, that we looked at, if I could go here, the prophets had pointed to it from the moment that they started speaking into the moral degradation, spiritual decline of Israel. And then even when we come through the exile and God restores them in the post-exilic period, he repeats that hope to them. That God is going to bring that promised kingdom of God's people in God's place living under his rule and blessing. Voluntarily, those things um, coming together. One final, um, one final thing from Zechariah from chapter 12 and chapter 13. We sang earlier and Dave mentioned how these things are finding, we're coming to the point now, and this is going to be really exciting over the next few weeks, where we're going to see the fulfillment of things start coming together in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And again, it's not as if these events are... I read these books when I was a boy in America. I don't know if they were here, but it was something called Choose Your Own Adventure. Have you read those? But it's kind of like you can make the story up as you went along by saying A, B, or C, and... I was terrible at it. Usually the book ended by page 20 for me because I couldn't get through to the end. But it's not as though God is navigating and responding to the world events at the time and coming up with the plan on the fly. Throughout all of this, this is why I took you through the prophets and to see how God spoke through Isaiah and Jeremiah and now Malachi and Zechariah, this whole picture coming together of how ultimately God's kingdom was going to come in people's Lives, And that's what the coming of his son as king, as Messiah, but ultimately to give himself for us. And so in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The prophet Isaiah talks about a servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. That the punishment that we were due was be placed on him and by his wounds we would be healed. And here he says they will look upon the one they have pierced. There's this picture of coming, sorry, getting ahead of myself here, to the cross. And in chapter 13, 
verse 1, it says this, On that day will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, to cleanse them from sin. On that, maybe again, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So to take us through this timeline again, the whole problem has been what along the way? Human sin. And how is God going to ultimately deal with that? It was foreshadowed as we went back to Abraham with, uh, you know, God himself provided the lamb. He provided the lamb in Exodus. And he provided the lamb one more time through the giving of his son. And he's saying he was pierced for us. And in him, there's a fountain that will cleanse us from sin and impurity. That's the fulfillment now that we get to look forward. And that's how we know it can come to happen because it's not dependent upon us anymore. <laughs> it never was. But we're going to see how that fully comes to fulfillment because it comes to fulfillment because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So hopefully now as we move forward into the next few weeks, which are going to be great because they get us ready for Christmas as well, we're going to wrap up this whole idea of the kingdom, the big picture with the kingdom being, um, if we go back to our list here, we're going to look at the present kingdom as Jesus comes on the scene. We're going to look at the proclaimed kingdom as it went out to the world. And there's an element of that kingdom fully coming to fulfillment when Jesus comes back that we'll look at in the weeks ahead. So let's finish our time together with some more singing. I'm just going to close this period with prayer, and Dave's going to come and lead us in a couple more songs. I think we have time for, for two, definitely. All right, let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I just pray that this little journey we took through the, uh, the exile and the period after the exile and kind of just this um, look at it as a whole and not just at the individual parts. Again, to just see how they fit together. And to get that overall grasp so that we can not, um, not be experts at it all, but have a sense as we read through the Bible of knowing, okay, this is where this part fits and can have a greater sense of how you have been working out your plan and how the different aspects of the story of the Bible start uh, coming together. And ultimately, as we came to the, um, you know, the, the end of this post-exile period, Lord, and as Sam mentioned last week, the the message of the prophets is not only of judgment of sin, but there's hope. There's hope to be found even in the darkest, deepest, uh, difficult times due to sin. Thank you, God, that even in your judgment of sin, there is mercy and hope that you extend now uh, as we jump forward and we start thinking about Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross. Lord, would you just give us grace and mercy uh, to finish this, this overview together, that we might finish it with a greater sense of um, context for all that Jesus accomplished for us. And really that it's not fully just about us, that there's a coming of your kingdom that is just um, overwhelming and majestic, the one that we should be longing for. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kingdom. And we pray as Jesus taught us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives and in our community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.